Hello and welcome to another episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host, Andy Woods. Today I'm joined by the effervescent behaviour expert, Adele Bates. Adele is known for her engaging teacher training in schools and her popular book on behaviour, Miss I Don't Give a Shit, engaging with challenging behaviour in schools. Adele has learned her craft by working in several mainstream secondary and primary schools, as well as holding roles in local authority pupil referral units, also known as PRUs. In our conversation, we talk about the many challenges of dealing with difficult pupil behaviour in schools. We discuss the multiple reasons behind why young people in whole classes can present challenging behaviour for teachers. In addition to this, we look at some pragmatic approaches that both teachers and school communities can apply to shape positive learning environments for their young people. There is no one way to do good behaviour management, but we discuss several principles which could make a difference. We even have time to discuss the merits of the rock school approach as well. So, without further ado, let's hear Adele's View from the Lab. Hi Adele and welcome to the View from the Lab podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. Not a problem. Now, um, let's get started with I like a bit of history of my guests. So I'm just going to start a little kind of brief overview because I like to know where people um, have uh, sprung forth in their lives. So, just as, just as a kind of starter really, can you just tell me... Any reflections your your own school experience in terms of obviously working schools a lot now, but what was your own school journey like? And um, what do you remember about it? Mm. Okay, really good place to start. <laughs> uh, so I was extremely conscientious, um, high ability academic, if we're going to put it in that, and um, I wanted to do really well, and I also wanted to save the world. And so I wasn't scared to do really well in the work, do all the homework, everything was done and sit in the head teacher's office and start the petition of why are we not recycling in this school and to galvanise other pupils to (laughs) be on my side and start a riot. Um, And I think what was probably really infuriating (laughs) from the teacher's point of view, as I know now, is that because I was an inverted commas good student, like obviously we can unpick that but in you know in all intents and purposes I was a good student so then when I would go in and say do you realize how many trees are being cut down in the Amazon rainforest and our school is part of that disaster um <laughs> and you're personally not doing anything about it Mr York um that was the head teacher of the Paris high school in 1996 um it was kind of, I could see, I could see, I even remember now seeing them in their faces, kind of this kind of tornness of like, damn it, she's right. <laughs> but also now, oh, I was always late. I am always late. Uh, I was always late. And um, I was also in all the school shows. So I was, I was a very good ambassador of the school. Um, so my, my first career, I was an opera singer. Uh, I worked in theatre for eight years. So um, that was in my school life. So I was very much like, leading in the shows etc and so when they used to say to me they used to try and give me detentions for being late in the mornings and I would I was that kid who'd be like can you just let me know in this 20 minutes of form time um what are we actually achieving and doing and of course it'd be like the register and I'd say okay well you can give me a detention but I've got orchestra on Monday I've got um dance on Tuesday and then we've got three rehearsals um you know and I would just kind of bamboozle them and by the end of that they'd just be like oh for goodness sake forget it <laughs> and so they gave up they gave up today just yeah so probably quite infuriating um like yeah I wanted to do well I really wanted to do well but also I was very keen on justice and social justice and I mean I remember going into the head of cooking's office I 
cooking was not my subject. But I found out that Paul Goodhead wanted to be a chef, but they didn't let him do the GCSE because there weren't enough places. Because, like, you know, in DT, in in tech sometimes you get allocated anyway so Paul Goodhead had to do graphics so I went in and complained for Paul Goodhead Paul Goodhead then was able to do it and I believe he did he was a chef at one point so okay it's quite interesting because I, I, I sometimes I speak to people and you're you're one of these people who when they refer to people in school they always give them a first name and their last, and their last, Absolutely. last name also intrigues me that um so I'm going to dig into some behaviour questions in a second, but um, the other thing I wanted to ask you before I went into that is, um, what is it about um, pupil behaviour that fascinates you? Because I assume that, um, obviously, you've gone down this route and you talked about being opera singer, and that sounds amazingly cool and uh, exotic to me. Um, but what is it at a fundamental level do you, do you really like about it? Because you must like it to study it and to, and to talk about it and to help people with it. So what is it that fascinates you? I think that it stems from my need for my absolute insatiable need for social justice and equality. Okay. It stems from there. So um, something I've become increasingly aware of as an adult, when I was up to the age of four, uh, my parents fostered children okay. with disabilities. And my mom at the time was like 24 and my dad was 20 seven like just incredible Mm. and so from a very early age I was always aware that there were kids who weren't getting what I was getting like they didn't have the home life or the adult care or you know all the things so I think I always knew that that was very deeply ingrained and I think only in the last few years have I realized how much that early memory of having those disabled children in our house being looked after how much that actually still fuels what I do today so I because I think that's funny because a lot of people say to me but you know you you were like a good kid why why would you be interested in essentially the children who were wrecking my education is how 14 year old adult would have said to you um but what happened was I I've, I've always taught I've taught for over 20 years and so I began teaching mostly performing arts and um, singing and dancing and drama. And these are the spaces, Andy, that kids get to actually let their steam off, you know, where they're allowed to be a tiger or they're allowed to shout or have a battle or all of those kind of things that we're trying to suppress out of them the rest of the time at school. In performing arts, they get to do it. And what I noticed was I have a great um, capacity for holding big energy and so often these um, and this is not a term that I you know I'm using this kind of glibly but like the naughty kids would get sent to me a lot you can go to drama with Adele you can go to drama with Adele and um, so I'd get these kids literally like climbing up the walls I remember one primary school I was working in and they had you know those bars on primary school halls and those kids was literally climbing up the walls. <laughs> like, oh, what a metaphor. Um, but to be fair to him, he was being a monkey. So, you know, swings and roundabouts, probably really well, doing well. So I just, I, I started to work with these kids increasingly because they kind of gravitated towards the subject, I think, at the time. Um, and then when I, yeah, so I'd, I'd always taught. And then I started working in PRUES, PPL referral units. I started working in alternative provision. 
and I just love the um the energy and the um in a way in a way I find uh, particularly teenagers with behavior needs uh, this is a bit of a, a generalization but in a way quite straightforward because there there's a lot of um, stuff that comes out that we read as either inappropriate or aggressive or violent or conflict, you know, those things. But at least you know where you stand. Like, it's all on the table. If a, if a desk's been thrown at you and you're called a cunt, well, you know where you stand. Um, and I have the capacity to hold that without, um, you know, most of the time, without taking it personally or having to react to it um, in a way that would make the child feel unsafe. And I think... So as I started teaching, I just I just realized I just love these spaces. And I really love the challenge of, okay, so you've got this kid who wants to come in, right? Our job is to help them learn. That's always my focus. My job as an educator is to help kids learn or be able to learn, right? Kids with social, emotional, mental health needs, behavior needs, classes who've got low level disruption. I see it like there's something in the way. There's a barrier to their learning. And this, you'll hear me talk of um, behaviour needs often as an SEND, as a special educational need, because to me, it's the same thing. There's a barrier to learning. So I have to, as the educator, it's my job to either remove that barrier or help the kid build around it. Oh, scaffolding. We know that term. We know that term from, from other areas. And I just find it absolutely fascinating. So I'll give you a very quick example. I was working in a special school for kids who've been excluded. And there was this one, um, often when I'm working, I'm an English teacher um, and drama teacher by trade. So when I'm working in APs, alternative, I tend to do literacy and, and English. So I was in there supporting literature um, with kids who are like 15, 16 year olds with reading ages of four, like that, because they've missed so much education. They don't have the home life to support. Like we're talking really big literacy needs. But this kid, we kind of suspected he had, he was 13, but we actually suspected his reading age was okay. But nobody knew because he wouldn't come to an English lesson or to the library or whatever. And so I ended up, I was like, okay, he's not going to come to me for his lesson. How can I go to him? And it turned out he was really good at climbing trees, which obviously has its advantages and disadvantages in a school environment. <laughs> but he was really good at climbing trees. I, on the other hand, am a bit rubbish at climbing trees. And so what I ended up doing was asking him to teach me how to climb a tree, which was terrifying. Um, but what it did is it put him into a place where he could feel in control. He felt like he knew something. He felt valued. He felt respected. Like, And I said to him, literally, if you know, you need to tell me because I'm going to fall off this branch. <laughs> like, we're not pretending, oh, it's an important mock test. It's like a real life scenario. I've just actually on the last call I was on, we were talking about motivation for kids and, and real life scenarios. And what was interesting is after that experience with the tree, the following session, he came into my classroom for the first time. And it turned out that this 13 year old who's been excluded from schools in a special school had a reading age of 16. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> And so what I'm saying there is his needs were not academic. They were not the things that you might assume. And this I see happen a lot in mainstream. We see a kid with behavior needs. We assume that it's because they can't do the work from a kind of academic or um, like an SEN 
traditional SEN kind of way. But actually with him, it wasn't about his ability to read. It was about his trauma. It was about his triggers. It was about his mental health that was that meant he had a barrier to stepping into my classroom and it was my job to be creative and to connect with him and form a relationship with him in order to remove that barrier so that we're reading we're reading novels like adult novels by that point age appropriate you know but adult novels um and that journey just fascinates me I love that no kids ever the same no class is ever the same um and one of the things I say often is um, there's no one way to do behaviour. There's no one way, despite what social media or currently in Britain, the Department of Education is trying to tell us. There's no one way to do behaviour, because if there was. We wouldn't need detentions. Our prisons would be empty and we'd have solved it all. But that's not the case because we're humans and we're living, breathing things that are constantly changing. And I'm going off onto a million things. I'll see what your next question is. But um, the context of where we are as human beings is what affects our behaviour. Yeah. And our context is ever changing. You know that as a science teacher. <laughs> our context, if we, you know, if we if we go out, um, the planet's always changing. The seasons are always changing from a macro level and then you can kind of go tiny tiny into a micro level we're always changing and so our behavior is always changing and therefore there's no one way to do behavior and that just I mean it absolutely fascinates me it means my job is never going to end <laughs> um but it yeah I keep I've been doing it for um like um specializing in behavior now for seven years and I'm I'm probably more enthusiastic than I was at the start <laughs> that's good to hear so I was thinking in terms of experience of, uh, of working in a, in a producer, so pupil referral units, um, is that correct? So do you think there's there's an advantage in a sense? So I always used to think when you had um, kids that were, were difficult to handle for whatever reason, there's always this external pressure within kind of a mainstream school that you had to somehow magically um change things is this pressure of of results the pressure of getting all your class to if you like in inverted commas behave and it sounds as if um there's a bit more freedom i guess in the proofs to actually probably get to know the child a lot better without the expectation of you reaching point x in the curriculum by month y um is that freeing to a certain extent that you can kind of then get you know embrace that a bit more Mm, it's, it's a good question I think what you're asking me there is um what's it like you know what's it like uh working in, in APs have you worked in them yourself in uh, no I, I worked in some schools that had um uh kind of separate areas I suppose over for those units. Yeah. over units uh within a mainstream setting but it was geographically mm -hmm. if you like in another yes. bit of the school yeah had a lot more staff to support they kind of integrated into lessons out of lessons um so but not not i've not i've never visited an actual people referral unit as a you as a right. individual unit andy your homework is to go and visit one it's to go and visit one it should be on all initial teacher training so um i am going to answer your question in a kind of roundabout way yeah the reason i wrote the book my book is called Myths I Don't Give a Shit, Engaging with Challenging Behaviour in Schools. The reason I wrote it was exactly because of this question you're asking me. I work with so many mainstream teachers who really want to do well by all of their pupils, 
but they just don't have the tools. They don't know how. And I, I've been asking this question for years now. And what I've discovered is most teachers have had approximately half a day's training once on behavior back in their ITT. Um, and teaching assistants and, and support staff have had zero. And then we expect you and us to be able to, to deal with these needs. It's like, well, of course you can't. And I think you, you kind of alluded to it there when you said, you know, you, you've got your whole class, you've got a kid who you are finding hard to handle or a kid whose needs are not being met, but you're not being given the support or tools to do it. So why would you be able to? And I think what's great about the role I have now and, and the book and, and the training that I provide and the consultancy that I provide is that I straddle the two for that very reason. Because some of the practice that we are doing in alternative provisions, people referral unit special schools, can be used in mainstream. And I would argue if we were to more um, have that in there and to train our staff properly, there would be far fewer exclusions. Now, we know that once a kid is excluded, they are less likely to end up with their five A to C's, old money GCSEs. They're more likely to end up in prisons, gangs, substance abuse. Like they, We know that once a kid is excluded, it, it's a, statistically, there are exceptions, but statistically, it's a, a hideous downward spiral. So keeping them in mainstream with the right support is, is more um, positive all around. And I think one of the differences you've pulled up on is, is, like you said, the freedom. Now, this is something that can be very mm, misunderstood, I think. It's interesting. One of my the, one of the most popular blogs on my website is A Day in the Life of a Prue, because people want to know this. And the difference is you won't have as much marking, like on a really just basic level. Basic level. Um, you, yeah, you won't have as much marking. However what you will have is a huge emotional um, challenge. So the children who end up in excluded often will have uh, experienced trauma, abuse or neglect. Um, they may have had adverse childhood experiences, ACEs. Um, they may be have very challenging home lives. There might be mental health issues. It might be that they've been through some hideous bereavements um it's you know it's not all um because they're from a broken poor home but um there'll also be a lot of kids in care in there and things and when a human being has been through something um that's traumatic that's negative um that will come out in different ways and as teenagers in particular which are my fruity category that I love to work with um you you add on brain development and hormones and all a lot of that kind of um unresolved challenges within them will be projected at you um and I think I forget sometimes and, and some of us who work in alternative provision we we get a bit desensitized like I'm used to being called all sorts all the time. <laughs> okay. And um, some people say to me, you're very sweary in your trainings. And I'm like, am I? But I, I forget that what I'm doing is quoting the kids. <laughs> and I forget that not everybody gets that all the time. Um, but it's, you know, the swearing's not the thing. But the, there can be a very heightened level of um, what can feel like personal attack 
it's very, very rarely, but it can feel like that because these young people have often um, developed um, ways of being in order to survive in the scenarios that they're in. And they take that into school. Of course they do. And then school deem it not appropriate. So it's a, basically you can't really compare the two. There's a completely different challenge. So, yes, the, the freedom is the joy is. I get to spend 20 minutes climbing a tree with a kid to help them with their literacy and it works mm. and it works. I have evidence that it works. Now, when I work in mainstream and I've got 36 in front of me because um, I've worked in those big comps where you're, it's supposed to be 30 and then, oh, whoopsie daisy, there's another one. Um, you don't, you know, I don't have the freedom to go and, and run up the tree with that kid to get them back in my classroom. So the challenges are different in that way. But what I've always found because of my um, experience and training with young people with behaviour needs, I've always found creative ways to bring it back into the mainstream classroom anyway. And so that is what I give schools and support schools with. I, I, can, I can sit there and say, look, I know what it's like to have those 36 kids. And one of them is about to throw a desk at you. Um, or maybe three of them um, since the pandemic. It seems to have increased. Um, but because I've been in both scenarios, I've, I've, I do a lot of one-to-one -one work in the alternatives, but also I work in mainstream. So I know how to transfer the, um, the tools. And it is tools. And I think that's why I do what I do, because there are so many brilliant, fantastic teachers in our profession. We're just an amazing profession who really want to help these kids but they don't have the tools. And then what happens, and if I want to talk to you specifically as the listener, if this is you, listen out. Sometimes what happens is when you can't control that class, you can't control that kid, you can't get them to work, you turn it around and say, there must be something wrong with me. I shouldn't be teaching. I can't deal with this class. That kid keeps telling me to F off. I must be a rubbish teacher. And this happens a lot in our profession. And I think it's because we're such, most teachers that I've ever met are so driven by giving education to children <laughs> and are so serving to our kids that when it doesn't work, we immediately just turn it 180 and it's like, oh, it must be me. But actually, how about and here's the invitation I, I say to people who, who come and work with me in various ways. But I say, how about just before you turn around and blame yourself, how about we say, have you got the right tools for the job? Because that's usually the issue. Um, but if we put this in a really practical way, let's say you've got to mend a boiler, but all you've got are knitting ne needles and crochet hooks. You just literally don't have the right tools for the job. And that's what I see. And so I share. Um, I've got um, a freebies page. You can jump on on my website, adelbateseducation.co.uk. And on there, for example, there are um, little tips and strategies and things that you can use in your mainstream classrooms. And that, that it's me giving you the tools or just sharing the tools. Or for some people, it's reminding them of the tools. Some people go, oh, yeah, no, I did remember that. I did learn this once about 16 years ago. <laughs> but the, what I see in mainstream schools, there's such a lack of continued training and what there are there are key things that schools ask me to work um, with them on one of them is consistency and one of them is de-escalation and motivation right if we want consistency with behavior 
this is radical folks, hold your hats. We need consistent support ourselves. <laughs> it's, it's a pretty simple equation. If I, need, if I need to be expected to consistently be patient, understanding, develop strategies, create scaffolding for kids whose behavior can be really disruptive, can be very aggressive, can be very um, difficult to be around. If I'm asking myself to be around that all the time, I need consistent support because I'm a human and I have days where I haven't slept or I had an argument with my partner this morning or I missed the bus or whatever it is. And so without those tools, everything becomes really personal and I, you know, then it all becomes all mushed up. So I need the tools. Um, so I've lost my thread of where we're going and what your question was, but I think I've answered a few. <laughs> it's, very good. it's very good. There's lots of questions appealing to me in my mind. I was thinking about kind of what you said earlier about um, uh, the kind of children you children you work with and um, the sh perhaps shocking to some people, I suppose, the F-bombs, you know, and I've seen your insults of the week and the way that kids are speaking to you. And then to a lot of people, obviously, that would be shocking to them. And to a certain extent, obviously, that will, over the years, I'm sure it washes over you. Um, and, but it made me think about... Um, fundamentally that um again the more the kids with the more challenging behavior and and the way they're speaking to you initially probably and you work on them as a time is it too reductive to say that really they're looking for adults to trust in the first sentence uh, to, to to move on to the next level of learning because they've been let down by adults in the past would that be partially true mm. um, i'm really glad you said that i just written that down as a point to say um, so what I do in my book, the first thing I do, well, the forward is by kids. The kids are at my forward. And then the, the, the first bit in the in the kind of book of it is I look at that phrase, miss, I don't give a shit. So just put your hands up. I can see you. Let's pretend. Um, put your hands up if you've ever heard that said to you or like a variation of it. Um, it's most teachers. In one way or another, we've had that said to us, right? And if we want to... Um, support this young person we need to know why they've said it and where it's come from so i think whilst the insults of the week and for those of you who don't know on twitter at adele bates said what we do is share insults of the week and they're just the really daft things that kids say to us <laughs> um, and one of the reasons i do it is exactly for what you're saying is so that we're kind of allowing it to happen we're not taking it to heart we're not overreacting when we don't need to etc cetera, etc cetera. but there's also a kind of more serious side to it which is a miss I don't give a shit could be I'm tired today and I can't be bothered right it could be I don't want you to get too close and as you alluded to um, I don't want you to get too close because I don't know if I can trust you so I'm going to come in and I'm going to be aggressive because I've learned if I do that people stay away and I feel safer when people stay away because I can't trust people because I've been let down before or it could be I don't want you to find out that I'm rubbish at this so I'm going to keep you away it could be loads of you know a million things and I think you know it's, it's that fine line isn't it between teachers and social workers and psychologists and everything else we're supposed to be at the same time um and I'm not sure sitting and thinking of the 101 different options is particularly the most uh, useful thing to do. But what is useful is to get to know that kid or class and find out why. And I want to give an example here of a whole class thing, because um, I think in, in general, you've, your audience are 
kind of in the mainstream classroom. So I think that'll be most useful. So I had a class once and you've probably had it where they weren't supposed to be your class, but then I don't know, somebody went on maternity leave or somebody had to take an extra role and then the class got divided up and then you teach them once a fortnight. And, you know, one of those things, it's like midway through the term. And I end up with this class basically, uh, year nine. And by this stage, I think this is the important bit. So it was kind of, I think it was November. November to me is just like the scary month of schools. I think it all cracks off in November. Um, so I inherited them in November. I taught them like once a fortnight or some, or was it something like once a fortnight, but once a week on the on the A, B plan. You know, one of those really random ones, which is really hard. <laughs> and by this point, all my other classes I'd got under my belt, we were swinging along since September. And what I did is I forgot the basics. I forgot that I hadn't put my expectations in. I hadn't spent time getting to know them. I hadn't spent time um, putting my boundaries in place or my routines in place because I just inherited them. I just kind of tried to teach them like I was teaching all my other classes. And the result was <laughs> revolt. Um, they it started with low level disruption, it got worse, I couldn't con control anything that was happening in the room, and I really lost it. And it it's really humbling when you consider yourself to be a specialist in behaviour. <laughs> and this is the joy of my job, like the kids don't know that. And if they do, they don't give a shit. Like they, the kids don't care who I am. They're gonna be how they are. I had a brilliant PGC teacher who said to me, just remember the kids haven't read the theory books oh yeah so yeah this class I, I just they were all over the place and so what I did I had a choice I could punish them and use use all the you know the behavior policy and sanctions and everything that I needed to in, in line with the, um, the school policy which I did but it got to a point where you can only punish a class so many times mm. And then there's that hideous thing of like, do you keep them all in? But actually four of them weren't talking and you're punishing them for the other's behavior. And, you know, you get into that debate. So it's like, there's only so far, and I think this is really key. There's only so far punishment will ever take you. Mm. Um, and we can see that in the fact of how many reoffenders come out of prison because our prison system doesn't work in, in that way either. So it's like, I, I absolutely did the behavior policy things. And, and this is the magic bit. It's the and. And I found out why. I found out why they didn't give a shit. I found out why they were giving me this behavior and these behavior issues. I found out why. So I, I, I literally sat down, I've got a year nine class, teenagers, and I did a version of circle time. I didn't say that to them because <laughs> they'd tell me where to go, but I said, right, let's sit down. We need to get honest. And I said, look, this isn't working. Mm. I said, this is not working. Now, this is this is totally up to you and how you feel and what kind of person you are. For me, I actually shared, I said, when I come into this classroom at the moment, unlike the rest of my week, when I come to teach you at the moment, I feel like I can't teach. And I was quite honest. I, I'm a person who's like that when I teach anyway. I know that's not for everyone. But the point was, we called the elephant in the room. We didn't pretend. I didn't pretend that more detentions or more keeping in a break was going to solve it because there was a root cause. If you don't get to the root cause, you might get compliance. You might be able to punish them into compliance, but is compliance learning? No. So I asked them, 
and this was this was I have to say after several weeks of me trying to work it out and that's why I said don't bother spending all that time trying to work it out yourself because <laughs> it's, it's usually a waste of time so I asked them after several weeks of going what is it is it me what have I done anyway I sat down I said what is it and they said basically they'd really liked their previous English teacher they were really annoyed that he didn't teach them anymore and I just didn't have the right face it was it was that simple it was that simple they felt like they'd built a really good um kind of relationship and routine and trust and established their way of working in an English classroom with this teacher he'd gone and they'd got me and they weren't happy that was it and I said okay so the first thing I did was acknowledge that and said that makes sense I would be annoyed too in fact I can remember when it happened to me when I was a pupil like I get that I absolutely get that and I said right obviously I'm not going to turn into him and for timetabling reasons whatever that is how it is Mm. and so with that in mind and this is what I love about teenagers is they can have these conversations I said with that in mind what do you think would be the most helpful for us because we're going to spend the rest of the year together and because they're teenagers and they're wonderful creative innovative human beings who think out of the box they're able to take that and think about it and contemplate and then they starts building the trust and respect because I haven't pretended I haven't you know I've dealt with the elephant in the room and it turned out actually what was interesting they couldn't it there wasn't like there was a, a magic thing that I needed to do this is not what's that film called rock rock school <laughs> Well, you know, when you know the film where the teacher yeah, comes in yeah. and waves a magic wand. It wasn't that. I'm not talking about that moment. It wasn't actually any action that I needed to do. It was the fact that I'd had the conversation. That conversation took maybe 15 or 20 minutes out of one lesson, right? After that, for the rest of the year, we had them completely focused every single lesson and I was able to teach them. So I think this is a big piece, a big permission piece that I give to teaching staff around behavior, which is you've got a choice. You can push on and push on and push on. And you might, yeah, as I said, for some kids, you might get compliance. For kids with behavior needs, for SEMH, you won't. You'll get either fight, flight or freeze. Or you can deal with the elephant. You can actually call it out. And it's it can be hard. And I think that's why we need support to do that because not every teacher is going to feel comfortable doing that on their own um, the first time. So, yeah, it's finding out what's going on behind the behaviour enables you to actually deal with it, because that way, actually, there weren't any behaviour needs after that at all in that class for the whole rest of the year because of a 20-minute conversation. Oh, I love my job. (laughs) Yeah, there's lots to unpick there. I was thinking about, well, quite a few things, actually. I was thinking about... um... Uh, a class that came up in my mind, I was thinking when I, cha- I was when we changed schools, I taught in a few schools and um, as you said, you know, when when you go to new school, it's irrelevant who you are, <laughs> how, long you, how long you've taught, etc. And um, the challenge I had with uh, a top set class who, um, in a funny way, I kind of reflected it now, they didn't have a, t- what is typical is I, I used to do science and you go to school and there wasn't a science teacher there at all. Um, and they almost resented having to do some work in a sense and I used to think well what what why aren't they really why aren't they clapping I've, I've, I've arrived and I can help yes. them with their, their GCSEs they're resisting me what is wrong with them 
Um, and uh, yeah, it was one of the hardest years. And I, I taught 15 plus years by then. And I was like, oh, yeah. what is what is what is going on here? Why are they why are they behave? Why are they resisting me? And, and actually, you know, remember to talk about gender, but it was the boys were very against against me for some reason. Um, I felt like they had um perhaps ruled the roost as uh, for one of a better phrase for a mm-hmm. year when they, they could do as they pleased and mm-hmm. here was here was mr woods coming in and you know saying no we're not doing that we're not doing that and i felt it was a, a big resistance mm-hmm. there of the i don't know alpha males i don't know the, the, the more yeah. rowdy ones in the group and i found it extremely difficult so that was the first first thing i was thinking about and the second thing um i didn't want to let go of my brain was rock school because um <laughs> for, the, for those who i'm sure some people see a jack black film where um uh jack black comes in as a supply teacher and starts teaching these primary school age kids um but it kind of uh, pinged off something in my brain that um when i watched it one of my kids recently i thought What's, fanta- what's fantastic about that film? It's a kind of a bit like progressive education, possibly. I don't know, um, because what he, why he was why he was successful, I felt, was because he uh, basically gave all the kids an opportunity to be successful at something, um, whether it be you know uh, the band manager, the keyboarder, the, the lead guitarist, the singer, um, the uh, all those kind of different roles really, and it worked very well because actually wouldn't it be great in a sense you could do that at schools and you could give kids. Uh, maybe it's pat, not pandering, but going to with their strengths a bit too much, perhaps. And, you know, we can't just do the things that we're good at to get better. But I thought it was quite an interesting thing. I don't know if you've got any reflections of Rockscore, mm. I was going to say, uh, in terms well, of your behaviour. Interestingly, I've actually never watched it because I'm not a fan of that particular actor's OK, acting. I can understand, I can understand um, that, but, but that's, that was my reflection on it. I've seen the trailer. Harry um, was very good at I think. I think as well, I watched those trailers and just go, oh, for goodness sake, it's not like that. Um, but OK, I do want to pick up on a couple of things you said. So, um, there is this kind of strange idea that we must force kids to do things that they're they don't like they're not good at okay and yes we need to for exams right i had to do physics physics is my worst subject (laughs) sorry i realize who my audience is i I found physics really really hard right but i still had to do it yeah fine and i'm sure that like you know vice versa we've all got our subjects now what is brilliant and this is where i start geeking out is that i've we've discovered in the last 20 years neuroscience has come on so much and what excites me from a behavior point of view for our kids is that the neuroscience is now backing up um what a lot of us have have known for a while so if you go into a classroom and you are told just before you step in that oh you better look out for mo when you walk in that classroom, your brain has been neurologically programmed to look out for somebody who could match the description of somebody who could be Mo from your life experience of who that might look like. And you're looking for them to doing something out of line. So you walk in and you see this kid who could perhaps match the description of Mo and sin of all sins, he doesn't have his blazer on, right? At the same time, You've got Sarah, who also doesn't have her blazer on, but you don't notice Sarah because she doesn't match the description of Mo. So your brain has not been programmed to find her. So you go in and you start telling Mo off and you're like, 
high, you know, you need behavior policy, uniform policy, blah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. And this is one of those points I was saying earlier. If we're talking about de-escalation, we sometimes need to stop and think who is escalating sometimes. It can be us. If I go into that room and let's say I'm covering or it's supply or, you know, that kind of instance where I don't know them. And the first thing I say to this kid, Mo, is something negative to him and start telling him off. How is Mo going to feel about me? And so we've got that going on. We've also got Sarah, who I haven't noticed because my neurons have not been programmed to find her. But on top of all that, there are 34 other children sitting in front of me with their blazers on. And let's say they've even got their pens out. OK, mm. <laughs> I know that's a bit fantasy, folks, but let's go with it. <laughs> they've got their, they've got their pens out. So what I am doing, because somebody very well intentioned said to me before I stepped in the door, oh, you've got 9F2, watch out for Mo. I have programmed not only my brain, but now also Mo's brain. But now as I go in and start to tell Mo off, I am making sure that every single child in that room's attention is on negative behavior. And what neuroscientists have taught us is what we appreciate appreciates. So what we look for, we see, and what we look for grows. So I am giving the subliminal message in that moment that the most important thing in that room is that Mo doesn't have his blazer on. And yet, schools say to me, oh, but what about the other 29 kids? Or what, what about the, you know, the, the low-level disruption is disrupting? All the... Actually, in that moment, I am the one who has chosen where to start programming everybody else's brain and everybody else's brain is programmed on Mo. Okay. And then just think of the difference of, okay, someone comes and well intentionally says, look out for Mo. And instead, I, 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 I know they've said that and what they've essentially done is they've planted an unconscious bias in me. Um, and so there is, therefore, it's my job or responsibility, I would say, as an educator to be aware of that. And to go in, maybe I do clock the possible Mo who doesn't have his blazer on. But what I make myself look for are the other 32. And I say, lovely to meet you. Really good to see that you're all here. Most of you have got your pens out. Oh, and a couple of you are getting your blazers on now, which is great because now we can get on with the lesson. So you've 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 given that expectation of I expect all your blazers to be on. But you have done it in a way that has flipped it so that our neurons are looking for everybody with their blazers on. Now, this might sound like a really, really, really small example. And I know that this isn't going to solve your behavior issues over the next fortnight with, you know, the over 200 kids you, that you, um, you teach. If you want that, come and work with me. But what I'm showing you with this example is that now, now linking back to the point you said about um, creating roles so kids can be engaged. All of us as humans do better when we feel comfortable. So what I'd like to do now is just a very, very quick experiment. Have a little think of something that you feel like you're not very good at. 
So for some of you, it might be public speaking or it might be, um, hang on, I usually say like using IT, but I realize I'm, I'm talking to a science crowd. So maybe it's drawing. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm using some stereotypes well, here. Help me, yeah. Andy, help me. <laughs> yeah. So but think of a thing that you're not very good at, right? So for me, for me, it's technology. Technology scares me, right? Um, and it always goes wrong. Um, I'm not surprised. Andy and I had some technical issues. I'm not surprised. Always happens to me, right? Now, when I'm in that kind of space, thinking about something that maybe it's heights, there we go, there's another one. Um, maybe it's something that I'm a bit scared of, I'm not very good at, right? Just notice what happens in your body as you think about that thing. What will be happening is the body reacts to the mind, not knowing if the, what the mind is thinking is real or not. So if I'm thinking of a memory of all the IT failing and you know disaster happening in a presentation or whatever, my heart beat will start to quicken. My shoulders will go up. My breathing will become more shallow. My nervous system becomes deregulated, right? Now, the fact that that's just a memory is the bit that I get to override as a fairly regulated adult. I'm able to kind of go, okay, I can breathe. I can bring it down. I'm not there now. The tech seems to be working, touching a lot of wood. Let's hope it's all good. But in that moment, as you're looking at that thing that you're not very good at, <laughs> Let's say on top of that, you're surrounded by your peers who could take the mick out of you or you've got a teacher in front of you who could call on you at any point and go, and what is the answer to question three? OK, so you can start to see that as the nervous system in our bodies biologically starts reacting, what it's doing is reacting to a perceived threat. And when we do that, the amygdala the part of our brain in the limbic stand that is responsible for emotions, it's responsible for fight, flight or freeze, is super engaged. And in contrast, the prefrontal cortex, um, which is your third eye in between your eyebrows, um, that is, is not able to engage fully. Now, that is the part that is responsible for things like rationalizing, analyzing, reflecting, empathy, imagining what it's like to be in somebody else's shoes, um, learning your subjunctive verbs. Um, it's that kind of place. And so if we want children to be able to learn even things that they find hard, even things they're not very good at, etc, etc. If you want to put me in a physics classroom, what you also need to be aware of is how to enable the very biological system that we walk around with all the time as humans how do we keep that regulated? Because if I'm regulated, if I'm if I'm with a teacher who I trust, who I find, you know, I have a fairly good working relationship with, if I'm around my friends, if I've had enough water, if I'm sitting on a chair that's not one of those really annoying stools that kind of wobbles, if, you know, all those kind of things, if I feel safe, and then if we're talking about our kids with trauma, abuse, neglect, we've also got a whole other safety and belonging inclusivity issue. Um, I haven't got time to go into that now, but you can read about it in the book. But the point is, if we are able to make children, this is radical again, folks, um, feel comfortable, they are more likely to be able to try the things that they find hard. So that thing that you're thinking of that you're not very good at, or that scares you or whatever, the, let's say the heights, if you're scared of heights, you're more likely to try abseiling if you're with an instructor that you trust, if you are with people who are supportive and are saying, it's okay, you can give it a go, you're all right. 
rather than somebody who goes up to you and goes, if you don't do this, you'll get a detention. I mean, that just makes my nervous system go even more. And so I think I would argue with you, Andy, that actually there's a huge amount of room within our curriculum. And this is what I support teachers do within our curriculum and within our classroom settings, even with loads of kids in, to be able to allow them to find the ways into our subjects that works for them. That's the first basis so that we get that feeling of familiarity. We know that familiarity is very good cognitively. Um, we we build that into the um, environment, the way that we teach, the learning, the relationships we're building. And so that when you ask 13 year old Adele to like put something over a Bunsen burner and she's terrified, like I was genuinely terrified that it would blow up in my face because that's what I'd seen on the films. But I was able to do that because of the environment that had been set up, because I'd been able to do things within that classroom that made me feel like I could achieve it. Now, if you don't set this up, and I think this is where the behaviour comes in and can often be misunderstood, not necessarily me. I was a good kid. I wasn't going to do this. But for some children, if you don't set that up, what you will get is F you. I'm not doing this. Throw the book across the room or become the class joker or start chatting or start, you know, pick any other diversion technique because they don't feel safe or comfortable enough to try that thing that you think is really basic. You think turning on a Bunsen burner is really like normal because you, you do it all the time. For some of us, <laughs> um, that's still hard. And so it's, I think, the, the ability to um, see the behaviour as a clue to the barrier that's in the way can be a really, really useful way of looking at it because it's like, okay, if the behaviour's showing me what the barrier is, I get to work with the root cause rather than just the punishment. Yes, punishments, consequences, sanctions, they may need to be put in place as well. And what is going on so that I can actually make learning the focus again in this classroom? I was thinking about your your character Mo, and I think how how powerful it is to, and a thing that I think I got wrong many 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 times was um, maybe not yeah see, say say seeing the in inverted commas co uh, um, commas tr uh, troublemaker and mm. picking something they did they did well. So I, I the one thing I remember from your book about amongst money things was like yeah just ask Mo to put put the blinds up for yourself. Cheers Mo, thanks for doing that or. Uh, uh, you know, as you say, nice shoes. They'd be great, great, great with a nice blazer as well, wouldn't they? That kind of almost not, <laughs> not, nice um, you know, you know, some kind of smooth talking about dress, nice shoes, like, yeah. you know, too, too kind of uh, hammed up, you know. Um, that's, you know, that sometimes works in terms of get, getting kids on, on on board, and you do tend to, as as you will probably know from your psychology, you know, we are negatively biased about um, yes. what we're spotting for very good evolutionary reasons, because yes. the downside of not spotting those things means that you your genes didn't go any further than walking past that tree or what, what have you because uh, something uh, happened and you know we're always looking for changes in the in environment uh, for the you know for the same reason it could be it could be trouble around the corner hundred thousand years ago but we still got yeah. the same brains in these technologically um advanced times so um what i was thinking of other than um what i was gonna actually another thing that kind of occurred to me is that i guess there the importance you were you were talking about, I think, is is you talked about sanctions as well, and a, a lot a lot of schools potentially have a reputation, and we could all name them for being 
sanction heavy perhaps um but when you were talking about you know when i thought about sanctions i worked at different schools and some had some were more laissez fair to be you know to be than others uh it tends to be the biggest schools that, could, that couldn't had those had those systems but i always thought it was important that if you as a teacher you were giving giving sanctions and the problem is you always forget sometimes you forget never detention next wednesday you've forgotten you've given uh, more detention but actually the powerful thing also and we talked about uh, dogs early on and i'm learning some with my puppy as well in terms of if you're if you're telling um if you're giving someone some instructions that that is the wrong thing to do however that might be you have to then you know do the do the sanction i suppose whatever it might be 10 minute detention or what have you but you have to have the conversation afterwards um for it to move on so any mm. thoughts about kind of whole school behavior i mean you must, you must see lots of different examples of whole school behaviors and you must in terms of the way schools manage manage them are there any particular examples where you think actually yeah that that school really did get it right you did mention a few in your book actually there's one in lancashire you talked about in your book you wrote about in your book yes, um so Barry. yeah so um what what when you've seen good schools getting it right what kind of things what kind of principles do you think they have i think um okay i'm going to give you one that i think it's going to be really satisfying for you andy okay. um because this one use their data um, oh my goodness is, yeah, you had yeah me, exactly you had me at hello there thank you <laughs> <carry> on. <laughs> um, so yeah i mean data is not my natural place um to be comfortable with i've had to learn that skill um but as i have i've learned that it can be very very useful with behavior so there's a school I'm working with in um, Triorki in Wales, in the Valleys. And sorry, that was awful. Like, um, <laughs> I just can't say it without it. Apologies yeah, to the Welsh sorry. listeners. Um, so they noticed, uh, this is particularly post-pandemic, that behaviour issues had increased, frequency had increased, et cetera, et cetera. And they did something very, very clever. And I really want to pass this on to as many schools as possible. So often what happens when a school notices that behaviour issues are increasing, whether that's the frequency or the severity, what they tend to do is go, OK, so we need to come down on behaviour and we need to be more disciplined. And why don't we start with uniform? It's usually the thing. And, yeah, and let's get really strict around uniform because the theory is and there is there is some like there is I'm, I'm saying there is some practice to this, but it's not on its own. The theory is if we're really strict about um, uniform, then it won't be able to escalate past that. Right. And there is some some sense in that. And I'm not saying there isn't. But what mostly happens is that where, that's where it ends. That's where it ends for a lot of schools. And what they do, we talked about it earlier, is by doing that inevitably you have a load of really boring assemblies where somebody in SLT stands on the stage and essentially I've seen this so many times barks at the children um we're getting very strict around uniform now we will be measuring your skirts from your knee and if they're not seven centimeters and if your tie is not three centimeters and blah 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 blah, 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 blah I mean like you're turning off right and that's kind of how it comes out what this school did instead is they went, okay, behavior's getting fruity. We need to do something. Let's look at the data. And they discovered, it was a secondary school, they discovered that actually most of their behavior points were coming from year nine girls. So suddenly you've gone from like a thousand kids that you were gonna come down with behavior, whatever that would mean, on, 
But actually, it was Year 9 girls. And then from the Year 9 girls, they discovered that it was actually about 15 girls in Year 9 who were actually causing, like, statistically, disproportionately, a huge amount of the behaviour points. And what's interesting, of course, historically for that school, and I would say I see this in a lot of schools, it's not often Year 9 girls. Um, it tends to be more the boys at that stage, sometimes, you know, big generalisations. But what they'd done is looked at the data. So what it meant was they could deal with the issue because they knew who they were talking to. And so what they did is they got um, this group of girls and they started intervention and support work with those girls to find out why, what was going on. And it turned out a lot of them were having a lot of issues with managing anger. They didn't have the tools to manage the anger in themselves. Now, these kids are post-pandemic kids. So I think if I get this right, they would have been the ones who kind of missed out on the transitions year six to seven and feeling the effects now, you know, it's that kind of cohort. And so then they were able to start doing some work and I'm not saying it was easy work or that it's by any way kind of solved magically, but what it meant was they were supporting the need where it was instead of trying to do this blanket approach that just makes you conscientious students more conscientious and more anxious. We are guilty a lot of the time of creating anxiety in our kids. Like, if, uh, no, no, let me take that back. Not creating it, but adding to the problem, I would say. Um, you know, those assemblies of you need to do this, you need to do that. The kids who are going to be listening are your conscientious kids who are, who are already like, oh gosh, what should I be doing? You know, and we just heighten everybody. Again, this, this escalation we're doing. So yeah, that, in, in recent kind of months, that's the practice that I'm just, I was really impressed with. Um, I've written, I've got a blog post on, what's it called? Behaviour and data or something like that. Yeah, I have got one on it. And because also it's really important to look at our biases that come up. Okay, so when you look at the Timpson report from uh, 2019, which was done around exclusions, you are more likely to be excluded from a mainstream school if you have an SEND, if you're a kid in care, if you're a Gypsy Roma traveller kid, if you are a Black Caribbean boy or Black Caribbean heritage. Those statistics don't come from nowhere. They start within our classrooms. They start from the fact that we have negative biases. Like someone said to me about Mo, but how many of us, hands up, have gone, oh, you're so-and-so's cousin. Oh, <laughs> the one I've just got rid of after four years. Oh, what is neurologically being programmed into my brain? How am I going to act with that kid? How then are they going to act with me? And then you can see how that gets replaced by those different characteristics that we see being excluded more. And so I think, um, jump on my um, website, look at that blog around the behavior and the data, because I think that practice um, can really lift the, the then school-wide strategies and behaviour policies that schools are creating because then they're making behaviour strategies and approaches that are appropriate for their pupils, for what's going on in their school. And if you still want your skirts to be a certain length and your ties to be a certain length, you know, fine, get on with it. But that is not going to solve anything because it's a blanket approach. Yeah. yeah. Did that answer your question? Yes, yeah, definitely. And... Um... Yes, you know, my science brain liked the idea of being a bit more targeted, I guess, with um, yeah. looking, looking, looking for patterns. Um, 
And um, I know you've got to go in a minute, Adele, and I know that there's plenty more to talk, talk about. Maybe I'll get you back on in the future to talk on, on the podcast. Just a final, final thing, really. Um, you, obviously, you've got a, a brilliant book out at the moment, um, and I know you do training, etc., um for many many schools across the, across the, across the country mm. um are there any things that kind of helped you with your behaviors any other resources or books back in, in the day that you read before well, actually that that was quite a nice introduction or mm. is there a cu- couple of books you'd recommend um other mm. than, than your own as well that would also yeah, help people question. kind of reflect on behavior before we go good question um so i'm gonna recommend two the one that probably one of the first ones i read was sue cowley so that would be one of the there Plus aren't it, many of yeah. us female, yeah, female behaviour <laughs> specialists with a swear word in their title yeah. uh, getting the boogers to behave yeah was, I remember that, that one was yeah one yeah, of the first yeah. ones um and a book that I've been reading recently so I've got um a mastermind that I run for leaders so it's um for like deputy heads assistant heads leads of pastoral behaviour that kind yeah. of role and we've been looking at recently um just picking up from the last conversation about school-wide approaches to behavior we've been looking at um how you influence and support other staff with behavior because there's like there's two things here isn't there there's like your behavior practice in your classroom but then there's also school-wide behavior and the consistency that you want across there um so that's been something we've been doing in the mastermind you can um come along and join us in there on um adelbateseducation.co.uk slash mastermind um but the last session that we were looking at yeah this this kind of looking at how we influence and support the staff and one of the books that's been supporting me with that is called the art of quiet influence um so that's really really interesting because kind of similar to the uniform policy stuff it's not about we're going to have a staff briefing and this is it now we are going to be really cracking down on every time you see a kid in the corridor with chewing gum like (laughs) rather than that it's how do you build trust with your staff how do you support them when things are hard with kids how do you support them when year 10 just aren't engaging and they're coming into your into your office saying here's my resignation you know my resignation letter um so yeah those I think that's the book that's been supporting more recently um around behavior it's not like actually about behavior but I think what I'm discovering increasingly is behavior is about how human beings are in the world and how we are with each other um, and how to make each of those interactions as positive an exchange as possible because and this will yeah this is kind of really comes down to the nooks of, of why I do what I do because I think if we are able to foster that in our schools positive exchanges working together collaboratively we have the potential to prevent wars we look out into our society at the moment there are huge wars going on now when I see a war I see I genuinely see um a group of children against another group of children throwing things at each other because they don't understand and there's hate and there and there's destruction and there's aggression and there's trauma and it's all built up and my weapon's bigger than your weapon and I need to you know get rid of you or whatever it is how about in our classrooms we're able to foster environments in which we can we can work together um even though your opinions are different to mine even though you look different to me even though you believe different things to me even though all those things how about we work out how we work together um so that we can get on 
nice point nice point to end on thank you very much Mm. for your time today and best of luck with your your mission of uh, improving the lives of young people um, uh, in in the UK so thank you very much for joining me today thank you for your time bye bye Well, I hope you got a lot out of that episode. It was great to talk to Adele about her experience and her strategies on how to handle challenging behaviour in the classroom. Adele is is passionate about what she does and I do recommend you read her book if you get the chance. You can also find her online on adelebateseducation.co.uk and of course all the social media platforms. Do you know someone who's making a real difference in education like Adele? If so, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me your recommendations at andy.woods at pearson.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you on the next one.